Uh, I wanted to spend our time tonight talking about self-acceptance, which you can probably tell from the slide up there and from the title of my talk. Um, you know, it's an easy topic to overlook, and I think I've often thought there really wasn't much to it. But the more I've studied it, the more that God has convicted me how much I need to change in this area, and I'm really excited to share that with you guys tonight. So with that in mind, um, let's talk about our theme verse. It's 1 Corinthians 15.10, which says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. Would you guys uh, bow your heads with me and we're going to pray? Dear Lord, we thank you for every good gift that you give us. Uh, we thank you for your word. We pray with the psalmist, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things from your word. God, we ask for the presence of your Holy Spirit as I speak as everyone here listens, we pray for more of you and less of us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I grew up in the 1980s. Um, I think, personally, it was a pretty good time to grow up. Um, you know, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have the internet, but we had some other cool stuff. Um, you know, we had arcades, we had shopping malls, we had dollar movie theaters. Um, I think hands down the best thing about being a kid in the 80s was Saturday morning cartoons. I loved those. I, I did not get to watch a lot of TV when I was a kid, but Saturday mornings, man, that was a different story. Um, my dad was playing pickup basketball, my mom was asleep or doing Bible study, and so if I got up early enough, I could rot my brain for a solid three or four hours before they would come in and make me turn it off. And, I was kind of a weird kid. I, uh, I liked the commercials almost as much as the shows, and I actually used to memorize a lot of them. And uh, I wanna share one commercial that really stuck with me. Um, if you guys could ask 11-year-old me how my life was gonna play out, this is what I would have answered you. gonna go for me with a body like this hang in there Tom I'm you two years from now cuz you're drinking milk and working out well I'm not changing so far but milk's at work inside you oh yeah and tomorrow the difference can show all that protein for muscle and calcium for bones but I'm still a skinny bench warmer hey if the sight of yourself at 18 doesn't convince you Tom listen to your senior year girlfriend hi Tom I'm waiting milk it does a body good Ah, Saturday mornings. As you guys can see, the future for 11-year-old me was going to be pretty bright. I had it all planned out. Uh, drink milk, get big, get the girl. So I drank a lot of milk, probably a couple gallons a week. Um, this may come as a shock, but uh, things didn't play out for me like they did for the kid in the commercial. I, instead, I learned a couple of hard lessons. You know, life is cruel, commercials lie, and that I was gonna stay a skinny bench warmer for the rest of my life. And uh, I don't know, I don't think I'm alone in this. I think the truth is that none of us really likes what we see when we look in the mirror. Uh, you know, no matter how successful we are, there's this ideal version of ourselves that we have in our minds, and if we're honest, we're never able to reach it. It never really matches with reality. At my age, I'm maxed out, and I know I'm not the guy in the mirror at the end of the milk commercial. Instead, I'm watching that skinny bench warmer start to get old. And you guys are all at different points on that same journey. No matter what age we are, I think we all have to wrestle with the same basic question, and that's, can I accept the way God made me? And I think for me, that's, that's a tough thing to do. And I think that there are four tests involved with self-acceptance that I continue to struggle with, and I've never really gotten them right. And I've never really gotten this right either. It's 
Thanks. So those tests are comparison, contentment, covetousness, and competition. So I want to take some time to talk through those four tests individually and then talk about what, how self-acceptance is possible and, and what it should look like. So let's take them one at a time. We working? Oh, cool. Thank you. There we go. Beautiful. So comparison. Comparison is the first test in self-acceptance. In order to determine whether I can accept myself, I evaluate myself. And as I do, I see that God has given me certain gifts and abilities, and he's given you a different set of gifts and abilities. And so it's only natural that we should compare them. Comparison is all around us. We compare our vacations on Instagram, in school, our GPA gets compared by class, class rank. Uh, at work, we have performance evaluations and customer reviews. In sports, we have top 25 polls and fantasy football rankings. These are all forms of comparison. They're not necessarily good or bad, they're just kind of part of life. I think comparisons can be good, and I think they're often necessary. I think comparisons are necessary to make decisions. So if I'm buying a new car or taking a new job, I have to compare and weigh my options to help me make the best choice. I think comparisons are also necessary to express gratitude. If I get COVID and then recover, I compare how bad I felt to how good I feel now, and that keeps me from taking my good health for granted. So while they are necessary, I think comparisons can also be dangerous. More often than not, comparing myself to other people causes me to sin. I'm either gonna drift towards pride if I compare favorably, or towards ingratitude if I don't quite measure up. And I think 2 Corinthians 10, 12 is key to our understanding of comparison. Paul says, for we are not bold to class or compare ourselves with some of those who commend themselves, but when they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they are without understanding. What is Paul saying about comparing myself to others? What is it they, that they don't understand? I think there are probably three things that we don't understand when we compare ourselves to other people. First, when we compare ourselves to other people, we're using the wrong standard of measure. Protagoras is a Greek philosopher, and he's famous for saying that man is the measure of all things. And I think what he means by that is that man, not God or some universal moral standard, is the ultimate source of value. All that matters is what man thinks or what man does. And I think that's what Paul is warning us to avoid when he talks about measuring themselves by themselves. Biblically speaking, we can't afford to do that. Ephesians 4.13 says, Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So Christ, not man, is the correct standard of measure. Measuring myself to compare with other people is like arguing over who's the world's tallest midget. It doesn't matter. Christ is the standard. I think a second thing that we forget when we compare ourselves to others, or that we don't understand, rather, is that we're trying to take credit for something that was given to us. This is the point of 1 Corinthians 4, 7, which says, For who regards you as superior? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? So, you think you're better than someone? Did you earn that? If you didn't earn it, why are you bragging as if you did? The truth is, everything I have is a gift. And for that reason, it's illegitimate to derive worth from how I compare to other people. I think a third thing that we don't understand when we compare ourselves to others is that we are not capable of measuring the things that matter to God. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So the things that we can see don't matter. And the things that matter, we can't see. So therefore, we don't have enough information to make a valued judgment. 
So stop comparing. How I look or perform compared to someone else has no bearing on my relationship with God. He made me unique. And when I compare myself to someone else, whether it's favorably or not, I deny the uniqueness with which God created me and that other person. Despite this warning, I think the Bible does ask me to make certain comparisons about myself. What should I compare? We talked earlier about how comparisons help me to make decisions and to be grateful, and we kind of talked about some everyday examples. What does this look like biblically? Let's take gratitude. Ephesians 2, 1, and then 4 through 5 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So Paul is asking me to compare my spiritually dead state before meeting Christ to the life that I have in him now. This is the foundation for the gratitude that I owe God. What about decision-making? Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Paul is asking me to compare the brief temporal suffering I experience on earth to the eternal glory that's awaiting me. Without making this comparison, I'll never be able to make wise decisions. If I'm always thinking about the here and now instead of the hereafter, I'm always going to pick what's easy instead of what's right. So while there are some biblically legitimate reasons to compare, anytime I compare myself to someone else to make a value judgment, there's a good chance I'm in trouble. Failure in the test of comparison leads to a lack of contentment. Before we move on, any questions or comments about comparison? Okay, well, let's, let's talk about contentment. Contentment is the second test in self-acceptance. Once I've compared myself to other people, I decide whether I like what I find or not. And based on that comparison, I may or may not be content. We generally think of contentment as a good thing. The Bible has a lot to say about it. Uh, one verse in particular that stands out is 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. It seems like Paul's basically giving us a math equation here. Godliness plus contentment equals great gain. I think contentment can be bad, especially when it's not accompanied by godliness. We can all kind of picture, you know, a guy living in his parents' basement, covered in Cheeto dust, uh, drinking Mountain Dew with a bong in hand, playing Xbox for a week straight. That guy's probably pretty content, but he may be content with something short of what God wants for him. Most of the time, though, my struggle is with a lack of contentment. I'm usually discontent because a comparison I shouldn't have made in the first place didn't quite meet my expectations. And I want to make three observations about discontentment. The first is that whenever I feel discontent, it's a signal that my understanding of the sovereignty and goodness of God has gone out of focus. This idea that God is in control and God is good, these are foundational truths in the Christian life, and they're taught throughout the Bible. And they're easy truths to believe when things are going well. But when things happen that I don't like, I have to decide whether I really believe them or not. We see this tension play out in the interaction between Job and his wife in Job 2, 9 through 10. This takes place right after Job has been wiped out. He's just lost everything he owns, his kids have all been killed, and he's got these painful sores from his head to his toes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. I'm guessing that curse God and die was probably not the kind of support that Job was looking for in his lowest moment. But 
the reasoning of Job's wife is exactly what goes in, on in my head when things happen that I don't like. You know, God clearly hates me. I'd be better off dead than putting up with this. How could God do this to me? And I'm ashamed by how hard it is for me not to think like that. I'm perfectly willing to accept good from God, but I absolutely refuse to accept adversity. And I forget the promise of Romans 8.28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So if God is sovereign and good, I can safely be content. If either of those things are not true, contentment will not happen for me. Second observation, uh, being discontent is a product of my perception and not a product of my actual circumstances. I say that again, being discontent is a product of my perception and not a product of my actual circumstances. Usually we think the exact opposite. If I have enough, I'm gonna be content. If I don't have enough, there's no way I can be content. The problem comes in defining enough. Are we gonna use my definition or God's? The truth is enough is a relative term. Wealth is relative. I won $200 in a basketball pool when I was a kid and I thought I was the richest person in the world. As far as I was concerned, I could buy anything I wanted. Now, $200 will barely cover enough gas to drive to this conference and back. Another example, a million dollar home. For a lot of people, that's a pretty good measure of success. If you live in a million dollar home, you made it. According to Zillow, a typical million dollar home in Desert, Desert Foothills, Scottsdale would get you a 5,000 square foot mansion with a pool. That same million dollars in New York City gets you a 750 square foot studio apartment. It's relative. And I think that's what Paul is talking about in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. He says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So Paul says he can be content in any set of circumstances. Doesn't matter if he has a lot or a little. He can be content. Why? Because God is sovereign and God is good. Paul knows that God is going to take care of him. God will give him enough. And I think that's what Paul means by he can do all things. He can do whatever God asks him to do, knowing that God's got him covered. Third observation. While it's easy to feel that discontentment is an emotion, something that happens to me, and it's outside of my control, I actually decide whether I'm going to be content or not. Why do I say that? Well, for one thing, I'm commanded to be content. Hebrews 13.5 says, Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. God's not going to command me to do something that I have absolutely no control over. That's not to say I couldn't use some help. I'm also commanded to give thanks and rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 and 18 says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So while rejoicing and giving thanks are not exactly the same as contentment, I think they're pretty closely related, and one tends to lead to the other. To the degree that I rejoice and give thanks, God will produce contentment in me. And just as being thankful leads to contentment, I think the opposite is also true. Discontentment tends to lead to anger. When you acknowledge that God is good in all that he does and you thank him for it, it keeps you from being constantly angry and it allows you to be content. We all know that angry, ungrateful, discontent people, they're no fun to be around. I don't want to be like that. And when I am, it's easy to feel like a victim, like everyone is against me. But the truth is, the problem is not God, it's not my circumstances, it's not other people. The problem is me and my refusal to be content. Failure in the test of contentment leads to covetousness. Any questions or comments about contentment?
Okay. Let's talk about covetousness. Covetousness is the third test in self-acceptance. If I decide I'm not content with the way God made me, I covet something different or something better for myself. Anyone who's been to Sunday school knows that coveting is bad, right? It's one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, 17 says, You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. What gets tricky, I think, is when we compare coveting to desire. What's the difference? Maybe not very much. In Hebrew, the word for covet and desire is the same. Many times the Greek word is the same as well. My Bible dictionary tells me that coveting is strong or intense desire. So in one sense, this is a distinction of degree. If I want something really badly, it may be coveting. It also seems to matter what the object of my desire is. Strangely enough, covet is used in a positive sense in New Testament verses like Matthew 13, 17 and 1 Timothy 3, 1. So older translations like Wycliffe and Tyndale are going to use the word covet in these verses, while most modern translations are going to use the word desire. So we can read, For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men coveted or desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not see it. Excuse me, did not hear it. And 1 Timothy 3.1 would say, It is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it is a fine work he covets or desires to do. So we know that if the object of my desire is the things of God, I'm probably in pretty good shape. But if the object is the things that belong to my neighbor, like in Exodus 20.17, then I'm probably in trouble. Let's set aside the idea of coveting the things of God. I'd like to do better at that, but... That's kind of a problem for another day. I think a big part of my struggle is dealing with desire and coveting for the things of the world. And I want to talk about how we handle that. So let's note a few things about desire and coveting. Firstly, we all have desires. That's not wrong. That's how God made us. The problem is that my desires are never satisfied. Proverbs 27.20 says, Sheol and Abaddon are never satisfied, nor are the eyes of men ever satisfied. So essentially Solomon's saying, if you think you can fill Hades to capacity with the dead, that's how easy it is to satisfy our appetites. It ain't going to happen. I get reminded of this every Thanksgiving. You know, I look forward to the meal all week, eat a light breakfast to save room, the meal comes, pile food on my plate, go back for seconds and thirds, eat till it hurts, pass out on the couch watching football, swear I'm never going to eat again. And then what happens? A couple hours later, I'm in the kitchen looking for leftovers. Not only are my desires never satisfied, they're often for things that are not good for me. And Psalms 106.15 makes this point. It says, and he, being God, gave them their requests and sent leanness into their souls. The context here is Numbers 11, where the children of Israel are wandering in the wilderness. And God's been feeding them manna, the bread from heaven. And they want meat. And so they grumble and complain, so much so that God finally says, enough. You want meat? I'll give you meat. I'm going to give you so much meat that it's going to come out your nostrils. And that's when God sends the quail, and he sends a plague along with it. And that's scary. That, that means that it's possible that God may give me what I want, but after he gives it to me, I'm going to regret it. I really want to avoid that. Of this same generation of Israelites, 1 Corinthians 10.6 says, Now these things happen as examples for us, so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. So it's possible for the things that I want to be not only dangerous, but actually overtly evil. So clearly what I want is not always best. To make the problem more complicated, at some point desire, as it gets more intense, has the tendency to produce coveting. And I think this is a question of priorities. Matthew 6.33 says, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. So in this context, Jesus has been talking about food, drink, clothing, and that, that's what these things is referring to. And, you know, Jesus knows that I have appetites for these things, both wants and needs. 
It's not wrong to desire them, but Jesus expects me to make his kingdom and his righteousness my priority. If I fail to do that, there's a pretty good chance that I'm committing the sin of coveting. In fact, anytime God's not my first priority, I'm not only coveting, I'm committing idolatry. And that's a sin that God takes pretty seriously. That's what coveting is. Colossians 3.5 says as much. Put to death, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So basically, greed or covetousness is idolatry. God wants me to earnestly desire him, and if I turn my desire to something else, I might as well be worshiping an idol. I think this is what Jesus means in Matthew 6, 24, when he says, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. There's only room in my heart for one first love. It's either God or it's something else. It can't be both. And that something else is, by definition, an idol. I know I don't see this clearly in my own life. I think Jesus is talking about everyone but me. I think I'm the exception. I can serve God, but I can also serve wealth or success or pleasure or whatever. But in the sports world, I know what Jesus is saying is absolutely true. Have you guys met those people that have two favorite teams and those two teams happen to be arch rivals? They say, oh, I'm a fan of the Wildcats and the Sun Devils. And if they play each other, I don't really care who wins because I like them both. I just really want to see a good game. You know what I say to that? You're not a fan. The Wildcats and the Sun Devils hate each other. Pick a side. I don't want to watch a game with you. I don't want to high five you. You're a traitor. You're a faker. And that's how it is with God. My loyalties can only lie in one place, and God insists that it's with him. Anything short of that is coveting and idolatry. What makes this even more scary is that the line between legitimate desire on the one hand and coveting on the other is thin to invisible. And I suspect that most of the time when I cross over that line, I have no idea I did it. This is in large part because it's hard to know my own motives. Most of the time, my motives are mixed. When I do something good, say I help a little old lady across the street, why did I do it? Am I doing it because I was trying to serve God, because I wanted to serve her? Was I doing it because I wanted to feel like a good person and hear her tell me how nice I am? Maybe I was trying to impress some people that were watching me do it. Maybe I thought she'd give me five bucks for my trouble. Maybe it's all those things. And scripture tells me to expect this trouble interpreting my motives. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 1 Corinthians 4.3-5 makes a similar statement. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. This issue is so murky, Paul says, he doesn't know his motives. No one else knows his motives. I can't know my motives, so I'm, I'm going to assume that they're mixed, and I'm going to let the Lord deal with it. In light of these warnings, how do I handle my desires? James 4, 1 through 3, I think, has some guidance on this issue. It says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. I think the takeaway from this passage is that there are two basic reasons I don't have what I want. Reason number one, I don't have because I don't ask. It's kind of obvious now that James tells us. Reason number two, I ask, but I ask with wrong motives. And as we just mentioned, my motives are mixed at best. There's a really good chance there's a wrong one in there somewhere. 
So what should we do about this? Well, I think it's probably a good idea to ask God for everything I want. He knows anyway, but he wants me to ask. And I definitely don't want to miss out on something because I didn't bother to ask. But if God says no, and he just might, I've got to be okay with it. It's highly probable that my motives were wrong and that God is doing what is best in refusing me. So ask away, but be happy with what I get. Failure in the test of covetousness leads to competition. competition. Any questions or comments on covetousness before we move on? Okay, let's, let's talk about competition. This is the fourth step in self-acceptance. So when I covet something, I often find that you covet it too. And since we both can't have the same thing, we have to compete for it. In our culture, there's a lot of mixed messaging on coveting, excuse me, on competition. Sometimes we think of it as a virtue, sometimes it's a vice. Uh, we've all heard about those stories of parents getting into fights in the parking lot after their kid's Little League game, but we all kind of roll our eyes at those everybody wins participation trophies. We're trying to find a balance between those two extremes, so how do we do that? Like everything else that we've talked about, I think competition can be good. It can be fun, it's a great way to teach team, teamwork, it's a way to bond with your teammates, to learn discipline, and it can be a great motivation to learn to do our best. I think competition can also be bad. I think we'd all agree, anytime you're talking about ruthlessly crushing your opponents for the limited resources of the world, that's probably not a good thing. Biblically speaking, though, it seems to me that it's incredibly difficult to compete without coveting. Ecclesiastes 4.4 says, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is the result of a rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after the wind. Solomon makes a pretty broad statement there. Every human enterprise, every endeavor is just the result of rivalry between people. And not only that, it's vanity, it's pointless. We compete over limited resources. There's only one winner. As a Christian, can I really afford to do that? How can I compete without being selfish and violating Philippians 2.3, which says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. It seems like we're kind of in a tough spot. But despite this tension, as best as I can tell, the Bible never prohibits comp competition. In fact, scripture often uses competition as a positive example. Jeremiah 12, 5 says, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? 2 Timothy 2, 5 says, also if anyone competes as an athlete, he does not win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. 2 Timothy 4, 7 says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. So fighting a fight and running on a course are forms of competition. One of my favorite passages on competition is 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, which says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. As we read this passage, a couple questions come to my mind. First is, what kind of competition is Paul talking about here? And second, who is he competing against exactly? I think Paul's talking about the race of life. In the race of life, everyone's running on their own course, and it looks different for everyone. Because his course is unique, Paul's not really competing against anybody else. He's just competing against himself. Unlike an earthly race where only one person can receive the prize, that perishable wreath, Paul can win the imperishable wreath, and it has no bearing on how you and I do. We can still win too. He's just striving for excellence in his walk with Christ, and he wants to be sure he finishes well. So comparing himself to others makes no difference because they're on a completely different track. He's just trying to please his master. If I'm honest with myself, most of the time, I'm not competing like Paul instructed me to. I'm competing because I covet winning. 
Since it's so difficult to compete without coveting, why doesn't God just prohibit competition altogether? It seems like it often does more harm than good. I certainly don't know for sure, but I want to suggest a few possible reasons. One, it may be that God doesn't forbid competition in order to test our hope. We all compete to fulfill our hope, to win the game, get a promotion, get a date with a girl, close a business deal, whatever it is. And this goes back to our discussion on desire. Just like desire, having a temporal hope is not sin. That's how God made us. We all hope to win. But just like our temporal desire, that hope has to be in submission to my eternal hope. We need to be competing for the imperishable wreath, not the perishable one. This is the idea of Philippians 3, 7 through 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. So notice the language here. Gain, loss, loss, value, loss, rubbish, gain. Paul's basically just doing a cost-benefit analysis. And all the stuff that he thought was important, turns out it isn't. What is important? It's Jesus Christ. I think that's the math that God wants me to do to put my temporal hope in the right place. And competition is great at checking us on that and letting us know when our hope is misaligned. A second reason that God may not forbid competition could be to help us learn to focus on the process rather than the product. My dad taught me this truth when I was a little kid playing basketball in the backyard. Back then, the ball was bigger than I was. It was like shooting a bag of cement. And I wanted to use two hands to push the ball up to the hoop because that's all I could do to get it up there. But my dad told me it was more important to practice good form even if the ball doesn't go in. That's focusing on the process rather than the product. And guys, my instincts are to do the exact opposite. I want the ball to go in right now, both in competition and in all other areas of life. But my instincts aren't scriptural. Let's look at a few passages on this. Ecclesiastes 9.11 says, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors, and neither is bread to the wise, nor wealth to the discerning, nor favor to men of ability, for time and chance overtake them all. So basically, talent doesn't guarantee success. Winning is a matter of time and chance. If my focus is on the product, I will be frustrated. Let's look at another verse. Proverbs 16.33. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Casting lots is a means of throwing dice or stones, and it's often done to make a decision. And basically what Solomon's saying here is that God controls the outcome of every throw of the dice. So when we read back up in Ecclesiastes 9.11, time and chance overtake them all, we as Christians understand that there's no such thing as chance, only providence. Third verse, Colossians 3.23-24, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. God expects my best effort. He expects me to work heartily, and he rewards me on that basis, not because of what I produce. Putting these three verses together, I conclude that God is in control of winning and losing. I can't control it. All I can do is steward the process to the best of my abilities. And if I do that and thank God for whatever results he gives me, both the wins and the losses, that's my best chance to avoid competing in an illegitimate way. You know, sometimes this is a really hard concept to swallow, especially when I'm losing. It can be really hard to thank God for that, but it's also very freeing because it means I'm not responsible for the results. I don't need to carry that burden. I just need to steward the process to the best of my abilities and God will take care of the rest. In his mercy, he is in control of the results, not me. If I were in control, I would just screw it up. I want to talk about the consequences and correction for these four tests. But before we do, any questions or comments on competition?
Well, let's move on. Let's talk about the failure of comparison, contentment, covetousness, and competition. I'm just going to call it the four C's from here on out. Getting my worth from the four C's is a losing proposition. Deep down, I know that I'm an 11-year-old skinny bench warmer in multiple areas of my life. And the four C's, it's a defense mechanism. It lets me believe that I can hide my deficiencies from you, and if I'm really good, from myself too. The problem is that no matter how talented I am, I will experience losing. God, in his mercy, designs life that way on purpose. Remember what we said in Ecclesiastes 9.11, time and chance overtake everybody. And when I lose, I will covet what I cannot get. I will become discontent with my lot in life, and I will compare what I wish I were to what I actually am. And if I've heard the gospel message and see myself failing in the Christian life, I may reject myself even more. Man, I shouldn't have lost my temper like that. I really didn't respond in love to that person. That was an opportunity to witness, and I missed it. That was, that was selfish of me. How can God love a sinner like me? And guys, for me, this isn't hypothetical. This is how I've lived the vast majority of my life, knowing that I don't measure up from a worldly perspective or from a biblical one. So if the four C's don't work, why should we accept ourselves? There's one reason and one reason only that I should accept myself. I accept myself because God accepted me. Hebrews 4, 10 through 16 teaches us this concept. Here, the author is aiming to encourage me that God accepts me knowing full well who I am. The context of this passage has to do with entering the rest of God. In the first nine verses of the chapter, the author talks about the Israelites experiencing God's rest by entering the promised land, which they didn't get to do right away because they didn't believe God, and they were forced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Picking up in verse 10 and 11, we read, For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall, through following the same example of disobedience. So we as believers are encouraged to enter God's rest, just like Israel. And this time, he's not referring to the rest of the promised land. I think in this context, rest just means unbroken fellowship with God. Uh, that's our objective. Then we have verses 12 through 13. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of the soul and spirit of both the joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. These are kind of weird verses. Um, I think this passage is supposed to be encouragement, and these verses don't seem very encouraging to me. They tell me that God is able to fully see me, that I'm open and laid bare before him. And I don't really like that, because that means that all those awful thoughts, all those impure things that go on in my head on a daily basis that I'm just ashamed are there, means he sees those things. Can you imagine if your thoughts from the last week were projected up here on this screen for everybody to see? Would you be happy about that? Me neither. That would be mortifying. Remember that the four C's are about hiding who I really am. I may be able to fool you, but I can't fool God. But the encouraging part comes because even though he knows what I'm really like, he still accepts me. I say, oh God, you, you don't know how awful I am. And God says, Scott, you don't know the half of it, but I still accept you. And verses 14 through 16 give us three reasons why we can be reassured, even though Jesus sees us as we really are. Verse 14, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So reason number one, Jesus is our high priest. A priest may not seem like much to me and you. In modern terms, we have a defense attorney, someone who intercedes before the judge on our behalf, and he just happens to be the best there is. Verse 15 gives us reason number two. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So not only do we have the best defense attorney, but he's sympathetic to us. He's on our side. He knows all the dirt, and he's still in our corner. And he's sympathetic because whatever we're facing, he's been there too. He's been tempted just like we are, only without sin. Third reason, verse 16. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, through Jesus, we have access to the throne room of God. I think the significance of this one is kind of lost on us in our culture. In the ancient world, the only person who could come into the presence of the king uninvited was the king's firstborn son, the heir. Anybody who else who came to the king's throne room uninvited could be executed. If you guys remember the story of Esther, you remember what a big deal this was. She had to go before her husband, the king, to plead for the lives of the Jewish people, and she had to do it uninvited, and she was scared to death, and she had every reason to be. Now, God delivered her, but she went into that throne room terrified. Through Jesus, we are able to enter the throne room of God with confidence. It's like a VIP pass, and Guys, when I consider verses 12 through 13 that he sees me as I really am, the fact that he would let me in at all is staggering, much less like a VIP with the confidence of a son. Notice that phrase, throne of grace. God's acceptance of me, knowing full well how flawed I am, is a product of grace. Without understanding grace, I will never be able to accept myself, and I will never become the person that God wants me to be. We see, we see self-acceptance and grace illustrated in the life of Paul. If you guys remember, his original name was Saul. He was a Jewish Pharisee. He was a young up-and-comer, very active in persecuting the early church until he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And it was at that time that he changed his name to Paul, and Jesus used him to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And Philippians 3, 4 through 6 give us Saul's worldly resume. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. So in the Jewish culture, Saul was a great man. He checked every box, and he was a Pharisee. If you remember, Jesus does not have kind words to say about the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 27 through 28 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like a whitewashed tombs, which, appear, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So, beautiful on the outside, dead on the inside. And this was definitely true of Saul. His resume was just externals. Inside, he was dead. He knew he was the chief sinner. 1 Timothy 1.15 says as much. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. Only through the grace of God could Paul accept himself. Let's look back at our theme verse, 1 Corinthians 15.10. But this time, I want to read through some of the preceding verses to get a little context here. In verses 4 through 8, Paul is going to outline the appearances of Jesus after the resurrection. And he's definitely listing a chronology, but there also seems to be some kind of a rank here. And that he, Jesus, was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So it's basically like Paul is kind of the runt of the litter here. And in verse 9, Paul says he deserved to be last in line. For I am the least of the apostles and not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. 
So he's the least of the apostles, despite all the great stuff he did as a Pharisee, because he persecuted the church. It seems like Paul could never forgive himself for that. And then verse 10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. In spite of all this, through God's grace, Paul was able to accept what he was. And God's grace was not in vain. Paul labored, and God used him to write the majority of the New Testament and to spread the gospel to the Gentiles. And it wasn't Paul's power, it was God's. This transformation of Saul, the whitewashed tomb with a great resume, to Paul, who is a product of God's grace, that transformation should give me hope. If God can change him, maybe he can change me. And that change can only take place in me if I accept myself as I am. And that may seem counterintuitive. It's kind of like saying in order to move forward, I have to stand still. But that change that I so desperately want to happen has to be on God's terms, not mine. I have to accept what I am now, and then God will begin to change me. I want to look at three changes in particular that self-acceptance is meant to produce. First, self-acceptance is designed to produce both humility and security. It may not seem like it, but proud people are insecure. They have something to prove. They're not content with who they are, and they're trying to show the world they are who they want to be. As servants of Christ, we have nothing to prove to God, to others, or ourselves. I'm important because the creator of the universe declares me to be, plus nothing. Despite all my deficiencies, I can rest secure in the fact that he declares me to be of worth, and I'm humbled because it had nothing to do with me. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So, said another way, pride is related to insecurity, because worth is derived from what I do. And what happens if I can't perform anymore? Humility is linked to security, because worth is derived from what God does. And what could be more sure than that? Second change. I think self-acceptance allows me to properly approach my strengths and my weaknesses. My natural posture is to flaunt my strengths and to try to hide my weaknesses. I also like to use my strengths to console myself about my weaknesses. But if my spiritual head is screwed on straight, I'll recognize that my strengths are wonderful gifts that I can use in serving others. I don't have to use them to meet my own needs. God will do that for me. Instead, I can be free to use them to serve other people. But my weaknesses, I think those are even more important because there I have the chance to see the power of God in my life. 2 Corinthians 12, 9 through 10 says, And he has said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What does Paul mean by power is perfected in weakness? God's power is active all the time, right? I can't so much as go to the bathroom unless he gives me the ability. But when I'm used to being able to do things what seems to be on my own, I don't really see his power. Miracles don't happen in areas where I'm strong, but instead where I'm weak and dependent on God. It's when the blind man sees, when the deaf man hears, when the lame man walks, that's when I see God's power. And God very well may ask me to do things that expose the weaknesses in my life. And if I can't accept myself, I'm going to hide from those things. Let's look at Exodus 4, 10 through 12. This is the tail end of God appearing to Moses in the burning bush. And God is calling Moses to deliver Israel from Egypt. And this is Moses' response. Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I have never been eloquent, 
neither recently nor in times past nor since you have spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So Moses says, God, you've got the wrong guy. I can't do it. I don't talk so good. And the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, and I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what you are to say. So God says to Moses, I know what you are. I made you that way. And by the way, we're counting on my words, not yours. Moses' natural reaction to God's call to ministry was to try to hide his weakness. God put that weakness front and center, and he focused Moses' ministry there. It's entirely possible that God may ask you and I to take risks in the ministry in areas where we're weak. And if we don't accept ourselves, we're going to miss out. The issue is not what I can do, but what God can do, and he can do anything. My goal has to be to do what he wants by his power. Too often, I'm trying to do what I want by my power. Third change. Accepting myself is the only thing that will allow me to accept other people. We've talked about how much I notice my own faults. I definitely notice other people's faults too. And you know what? I found that the best way to take my mind off of my own problems is to focus on other people's faults. Because let's be honest, their faults are pretty bad. If I can't accept myself, then I become insecure. And I call attention to your faults. And that makes me feel better about myself. Romans 15.7 teaches that I don't have that luxury. Therefore, accept one another, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. So you are accepted by the same mechanism that I am. That acceptance is not based on your performance, and it's certainly not based on mine. God invites me to the throne of grace, and he invites you there too. And since he's accepted you, I've got to do business with that. If God accepts you, I must accept you. And for that same reason, you must accept me too. We can't have a standard higher than God's. How dare I suggest that my standards are higher than his? That's insanity. Now, I'm not trying to suggest that we're just supposed to ignore each other's sin. There are passages in scripture on how we're called to deal with that. But what I am saying is that God sets the standard. I'm in no position to make my own. Passages like Matthew 7, 2 warn us against that. Jesus says, For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. If I try to make a standard higher than God's, he's going to turn around and use it right on me. I've got enough trouble it is. I can't afford that. So while it's a huge relief that God accepts me, it comes with an obligation. Because because he accepts me, I'm therefore obligated to accept both myself and also other people. Guys, God is in the people business. Jesus died for people. I'm never going to be able to love people the way I'm called to if I can't accept myself. I'm going to leave you guys with one final verse. This is Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. The Greek word for workmanship is poema. It's the root from which we get the word poem. And this verse is teaching us that God is an artist. He's a poet, a master craftsman. And we, believe it or not, are his art. All those quirks about myself that I can't stand, they're intentional. And all those little things that I wish were just slightly different, they were made by the master artist with an artist's touch. And when I resent the way God made me, I'm basically saying to the one who made the stars and the galaxy, DNA and the inner workings of the cell, the oceans and the Grand Canyon, every species of animal, I have the nerve to say to him, I think I know a little bit more about art than you do. Let me tell you how you screwed up. This doesn't mean that God isn't going to ask me to change. I sure hope he's going to sanctify me and get rid of my sin. But my goal is to be his masterpiece and not the way that I think I should be. That's all I got for you guys. Thanks for your attention.